welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. My name is Kars Fox and I'm your current host for this season. You are currently listening to Legacy Part 3. If you missed Legacy Part 1 and Part 2, I encourage you to listen to both in order, as all episodes from this series are interconnected. Legacy Part 3 specifically builds on Legacy Part 2 by further introducing you to the activist efforts of student leaders on campus. This episode will also introduce you to two new guests, Shannon Saul and Abdul Ayad. The first speaker and returning guest is Teo Lucero, who currently is a board member of the Native American Advisory Board, as well as a member of the working group of the Sand Creek Massacre Memorial. To begin, I asked for her to further introduce her work in both of these positions. I was asked in 2020 um, to be a student representative on that community um, that was created um, as a working group that would hopefully advocate more for building a Sand Creek Memorial on campus. And that is something that's been, I don't know, heavily debated for a long time now, considering that the Native Student Alliance and like our own Native and Indigenous community here on campus has been wanting that for so long only because we feel that it is important that we feel like the public, especially the DU community, be aware of these, you know, of the history um, that the founder, John Evans, was complicit in, in the Sand Creek Massacre. So it's one thing to talk about it, but it's like, where are those educational materials specifically on that history on campus? Because it's like, I'm not seeing it. And I found out, I believe, the beginning of this year, there was a course for freshmen on the Sand Creek Massacre, I believe, taught by Dr. Kelly Fayard, which is something that I believe should be a required course, you know, for every DE student that attends here to, you know, know about the history and knowing, like, why students, Native students in particular, are advocating for removing the pioneer, because I feel like that's an issue that some students don't seem to understand specifically and why we are fighting for it. Um, And then I hold a undergraduate student representative position on the Native American Community Advisory Board. And essentially that was also one of the demands that we had, I think for over a decade, I believe. And I just felt like there was just a really long period of time where you know, the Native American faculty and the staff and different members on campus weren't able to build a solid group only because of the different complications that we had um, with the chancellor and like the positions and everything. So we were able to finally build a group, a strong working group um, where we come together and we talk about how we can make um, the community and and the spaces here on campus much safer for our Native students. And we really emphasize safety because, you know, being a student of color at a predominantly white institution, it's very challenging to navigate these spaces, um, being that the Native and Indigenous community is small, but it surely is growing. So we just want to advocate for um, the needs and the wants of our students and making sure that they do have a good experience here, especially at a private institution. And then in, in acknowledging too that like a lot of the work that has been done to create a safe space for Native students is being done by Native students and faculty and staff that were already here presently. And it's definitely important to separate that from DU 
only because I think it's important to say that, yeah, you know, like, for example, the Native Student Alliance has created a really safe space um, for Native and Indigenous students, staff and faculty. So I think it's different to different, differentiate that from saying that DU supports its Native students when in fact that may not be entirely true. Shannon Saw is a co-creator of the Do Better campaign, which advocates for the implementation of better practices to support survivors at colleges and universities throughout the country. I asked Shannon to further introduce Do Better to you all in her own words. I would say it was a student and survivor-led movement to allow survivors to share their stories, whether or not they wanted to publicly put their name and face out there, um, and to bring awareness to the fact that sexual assault and other gender-based violence is so rampant on our campus. Um, and eventually it became about all college campuses, but really the goal was to shine a light on it so that we could get administrations to do something about it. For two years, Abdul Ayad focused on establishing a prayer space for Muslim students on campus. I asked him if he would further introduce this project to me. Personally, for me, one thing that that I, I really liked working on and uh, was really glad that I managed to see it through and uh, the results of it was definitely the, the prayer space uh, on campus. Um, so for a little bit of a backstory, the DU used to have a prayer space and then once the Driscoll Bridge got taken down, um, that also got taken down along with it because a lot of offices uh, ended up uh, having to be relocated and so, you know, priorities ended up uh, taking up that space. And so, um, and it's, I, I noticed a lot of um, students, what they would do is, uh, you know, just pray in the library, reserve a room for an hour and then pray or um, just take a corner in the library or something like that. And so the, the initial idea was to convert one of the study rooms in the library to a prayer space. Um, I just learned at that time that there wasn't a prayer space on campus. And that never really affected me personally because I lived on campus. So, you know, wasn't really that big of an issue but I, I, I started to see the perspective of students who um, are living off campus and had to drive to campus and so that was basically like a two-year process of um, talking to administration within the library um, kind of getting rejected from the administration uh, in the library speaking to Lily Rodriguez who was uh, vice chancellor uh, and she um, and I'm really, really happy to how it turned out right now um, in the fact that, like, even if I'm not using it, a lot of people are actually using it. Um, specifically MSA, they have a lot of meetings there. They have a lot of events going on in there. Um, students are using it in between classes for prayer, uh, the Friday prayer as well, which is really important um, within Islam. I, I think it exceeded my expectations in terms of how we how well we can convert it and how many people would use it you know obviously at first i was like well maybe if like two or three people would use it every once in a while that's good enough but we actually had like some 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 big numbers showing up and i think we were really glad about that and so that was personally for me one of uh you know my like prized uh projects that i worked on um within campus especially because it's it's a physical space i guess um, that I can kind of actually see the, the fruits and the, the reward for my labor, I guess. Next, I wanted to introduce what the Remember X project is and what the initial motivations were behind starting the project. The Remember X project was started in the fall of 2019 
And our mission statement for this project was that it was a uh, testimony of student demands and resilience in the face of exclusion, hate, and oppression at the University of Denver. And really what we wanted to do with this project was just better understand the lived experiences of students, students of color specifically. And not only did we want to know what they go through and what they face on a daily level in, in both the extremes and the unextremes, but we did also just want to know what they wanted from their university, what they'd like to see in place for them, or what they'd like to see in place for the people who come after them. And so through this project, we were able to uh, create a website, an official website, where all of our research is housed and the student demands throughout the years are housed, um, as well as just community testimonies. That was something that we really wanted to do is just understand and bring people together and listen to what they had to say. So the community aspect and just listening and being there to actually say, I see you and I hear you was really an important part for us. And so of course this research project isn't done, it's ever growing and hopefully it will continue to grow throughout the years. I think that's something like this podcast series as well as our, our research has really revealed is that students, a lot of these students go through the same things throughout the years. And so in a way it's also connecting different um, I guess, cohorts or uh, years of people together and to say, I see your fight and I'm picking that fight up or I see that fight and we've won that fight now. So it's really something that I hope continues to evolve throughout the years as DU grows. And I hope that just one day there's no need for this documentation and that the issues that are repeating have been resolved and that we're seeing students be safe and be empowered on their campus and just be able to be students and not have all of these other levels of hardships that they have to work through. Next, I asked my guests to walk me through the process of beginning their projects. To clarify, when the first thing I did with the uh, press spaces, I sent out a survey, um, got it shared, got around, I think, 200 responses, um, just to kind of gauge, A, uh, would you be against having a press space, yes or no? I believe everyone said yes. Uh, like, not, not as in against it, like they would, like to see a press space on campus. Um, a lot of them obviously were Muslim students who want one, and then other people were allies who would like to see one for Muslim students, right? Um, second of all, where would you like that to be seen? I put like library, ECS, um, Marjorie, I think. I put like multiple locations. The library was by far the, the most dominant one. Um, and then, you know, I also got like some extra data, like what year are you in? Are you grad? Are you undergrad? Do you live on campus, off campus? And then just if op and then an optional like just write why you would like to see um, a press space on campus and then from those responses i made a presentation uh to present to the library administration as to why and then i also got research i guess um i had to go about it also not only from a you know this is what we want and you know feeling standpoint but i needed facts to back it up so i researched other universities that um provided press spaces within libraries or within certain spaces such that and what, what they saw, right? And so there was like a certain percentage of uh, increase in study room availability because uh, what a lot of students will do if they need to pray, they'll rent a reserve room for like an hour, go and pray and leave. And so that's like an hour block that's not really used. Uh, and so I needed those facts as well on top of the survey facts. And I shared that with the administration and we got essentially really good uh, a really good response, right? Like, yeah, wow, that's a really, really well done presentation. Um, unfortunately, at the time, the dean or the vice chancellor of the library, I don't know who the, the director of it is, um, was away at the time. And so they, they were like, by the beginning of next month, uh, 
he'll be back and we'll, we'll get a response to you, right? And so two months went by and we didn't get a response. Um, and so I reached out again and they didn't respond to that. And so I reached out again after a month, I believe. And basically what we got was the usual, oh, we're still working on it and trying to find, figure out logistics, et cetera, et cetera. And by the time Ramadan came around, we had our usual Ramadan committee meeting, which included um, obviously a lot of members of the cultural center, the library, um, and other, uh, you know, anyone who, anyone else who wanted to be part of the committee, right? And at the time, we, um, I think what we, what we noticed was the, the person who was representing the library mentioned that we can, uh, we can reserve a room such that uh, it's available for Ramadan. And then um, what kind of bugged me about that was, I thought you said we're going to have a permanent one. That was kind of the, the idea. And like, they never said that it's not going to happen. They just always said, yes, we're just still trying to find a spot and trying to figure out the logistics behind it, I guess. Right. And so that was kind of like, that's not what you said. Um, uh, a great, a great ally through that time as well was uh, Dr. Andriette Jordanfields, uh, who helped us a lot with uh, also just, you know, pushing against the the library when they were pushing back on us right um and just helping putting that pressure and kind of just getting them to communicate with us properly right because like i said like they kind of gave us the idea that it was going to happen and then at the end they were like oh yeah this is just going to be for ramadan and so uh that day we we spoke further and we're like what's happening well, we thought we can convert a study room and and we spoke with them again uh, that day. We had a meeting after the Ramadan meeting and went to the library, showed a bunch of rooms. And basically they kind of gave us options as to when, uh, when it would be available and how long it could be available for. And so at that time, um, I had spoken with Lily as well because Mary told me, uh, Mary had uh, met with Lily before. And I guess she told her about uh, my idea for a prayer space and Lily had, wanted to speak to me about it because she you know, had the room in Driscoll that she wanted to propose to me, right? And so that helped me with the meeting in the library to then be like, okay, how about we don't need a permanent spot? Let's just have a temporary spot until the commons is built and then we can move to that spot, right? Um, and so that was the agreement that we finally managed to reach to, uh, to, to get that, I guess, demand done, right? And so we were like, I think by, like the end of spring quarter, we were going to have uh, the, the the prayer space and all that. And then um, when the commons is built, we'd move there. And then obviously COVID hit, none of that happened. And we waited and waited until um, the the spot on Driscoll opened up. Um, and the the administration that helped me with that was Mo Latif and Todd Adams. Um, and it was really nice as well because uh, they, they mentioned to me how like they've basically re reserved the spot uh, for the entirety of COVID where uh, a lot of departments wanted, I guess, to, you know, use it as an office space and all that, but it was specifically like, uh, no, this is a project that uh, has been in the works. And so I, I appreciate their support as well with um, making sure that I guess they held their end of the bargain. Right. Um, and yeah, and I think that was, like winter spring quarter of my last year where we 
guaranteed the spot and then we had like an action plan for like all right we're gonna get uh like these decorations some bookshelves some shoe racks that kind of stuff and that's where msa really helped out with uh you know uh decorating a lot and like getting the word out there getting you know like a also like an event going on with uh like let's decorate the press space that kind of thing so um so yeah like it it was it was a process and you could see how like a lot of the biggest thing they do is stall right they they don't communicate or they miscommunicate uh one day they'll be often like really optimistic about it and then the next they'll say something like oh that's not what we said like we didn't mean it that way or something like that and that's that's a that's that's a big case leading up to do better i started working in like anti-gender based violence work mm -hmm. my freshman year of college at du i joined a student organization that was called sessa at the time student coalition to eradicate sexual assault it had been created a couple years before i started here during um when there was protests happening at campuses all across the country when the hunting ground documentary came out yeah. um it was a big conversation and we created a student org on campus and then nothing was really happening mm -hmm. my freshman year two seniors were leading the organization and we put on a couple events but like we weren't really doing much so i talked to them at the end of the year about wanting to lead the organization the next year and i ended up being president my sophomore through senior years and i just kept hitting wall after wall um my emails to chancellor chop were not being answered yeah. Um, I couldn't get anybody to talk to me. I, we hosted events, like we hosted sexual health events. We hosted, um, like open mic nights for survivors to share their stories, but it was always something that like very few people came to. People didn't really know our student organization existed and I couldn't really get anyone in charge to talk to me. Yeah. Um, which is why my senior year I decided that we needed to create something. Actually my junior year I had to create a Tumblr account to do kind of a similar thing and it didn't take off. Um, so my senior year, I decided, okay, let's make an Instagram account and let me try one more time before I leave you to really see if we can get traction on this. But it was countless hours and like being frustrated and emails that like I couldn't get any attention before this started. And I think honestly, it just, it was a combination of timing and luck that it ended up taking off at all. Yeah. There was kind of, when we had first actually met at like the Remember X uh, planning session, that's kind of something that you had said about, you were like sending all these emails and no one was being responsive. And we've had like similar things where until you get the greater like campus community to know about it, then you might get some response. Did you experience that too? But like when you go directly to them, you don't really like get any yeah any response. I will say it was a combination of like we got a new chancellor Ch Chancellor Hafner who mm -hmm. like was more responsive to the issue I would say and it was like we got media interviews we did yeah. 11 media interviews in two weeks and then finally the university wanted to talk about it and the Denver Post yeah, yeah. I remember our first media interview I think was cha with Channel 4 like a local news station mm -hmm. and when we were doing the interview, they were like, we've reached out to DU, and they said they're not going to comment. Oh. And then by the time our interview came out, they had actually told the Title IX coordinator to go do an on-camera interview with him. Like, they had realized that they actually needed to say something. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, they were willing to talk about it. So yeah. I definitely think it took external pressure, yeah. for sure. And I think it was that also, and because of my position in the undergraduate student government, I was there when we got a briefing from campus safety fall quarter of my senior year 
when they told us that there were numbers of druggings happening on campus that like weren't necessarily reflected in campus safety's reports and that they were concerned about a local bartender drugging students and that was really concerning to me um and so once we started asking questions about that combined with the news interviews i think that that's when they finally felt like they had to respond Mm -hmm. what did your average day look like in undergrad once do better started oh god um (laughs) it was like going to classes and then in between like answering requests for interviews for media outlets and then mm-hmm. like in between classes and after classes having meetings with like fellow student activists or the administration and then on the weekends like having meetings with like the chancellor's new liaison that he wanted to assign to us to, to work on like this issue with fraternities and stuff it was mm-hmm. like all day every day this was what we were working on yeah mm-hmm. so how many hours would you say oh god um i mean hundreds i mean over the course of my like undergraduate career definitely like probably almost a thousand hours but like when we were in like the midst of all of this was definitely hundreds of hours that we spent I will say that the Remember X project in many ways is just kind of building uh, on the documentation that was largely already being undertaken by staff and faculty of color when I had began this project I was uh, granted access to a folder in which um, that was ran by staff and faculty of color who had documented different instances of hate throughout the years. And so this documentation included photos, included um, news articles, emails, and um, video links and whatnot. So it really gave me a, a really good foundation to begin to build upon. And so I always like to give a shout out to them because that was their work. And they were um, very um, gracious enough to um, share it with me and and to build it upon. So I want to give credit where credit is due, especially. The library was also incredibly helpful in understanding um, student activism specifically and the different instances of student activism throughout the years. And while I could um, in person and then there document um, student activism that was happening while I was present throughout my four years at DU, I didn't necessarily know how that had gone on before I got there. So and specifically the work of Kate Crow, incredibly helpful in helping me better understand um, the activism that students were undertaking before I had ever been admitted to DU. Although I started um, a lot of the research beyond what I had already been granted access to, I did myself and had to um, look into. Um, Once I regained a basic-ish foundation for our research, And I would say research is never done, especially with this project. We're always building and always growing. But that's when um, my team came in. Um, And my team consisted of faculty, staff, undergraduate and graduate students. And for reasons that I hope are clear by the end of this podcast, I'm not going to say any of their names um, just to keep them safe or any of the names of our allies throughout the years. But my team were really the ones who um, came together and Um, helped create this vision and helped say what they wanted to see and what they thought it could bring. And it was really cool that our member X brought together um, different, I guess, categories of people that you would see at DU. It wasn't just undergraduates, it was graduate students, it was faculty, it was staff. And so you really got to understand the experiences of just community members in general, not specific demographics, not specific um, undergraduate experience, but you got to see it collectively throughout. So a lot of the process in getting this started up was really meeting with people Um, having conversations with them, um, a lot of research, obviously, (laughs) a lot of digging into the um, sources of the library, a lot of digging into the institutional knowledge of faculty, staff, and even students who who have been at this university longer than I have. 
Um, and then for the community aspect, um, it was really bringing people together and understanding, having face-to-face -face conversations about what they would like to see and whatnot. One event that we threw at the very beginning, once we had um, kind of solidified our research, was a um, sharing circle, which was inspired by Daniel Kim, who was my mentor at the time, and who really just guided me throughout this whole project and really taught me just the basics of what it means to um, be a community organizer, what it means to organize. And so I have so much love for Daniel and Daniel really just um, guided me throughout this. So gotta give credit where credit is due. In the sharing circle, we were able to bring people specifically from different organizations all throughout um, the campus who were available and had the capacity to come. And it was really just a moment to just listen to everyone, to just hear what they wanted to say and what they thought. And everyone had similar experiences. Some didn't have um, the same experiences, but we were able to see like that there does need to be a change and, and we need to do something about this. And so that was really the power behind Remember X. And that's what I hope it represents to people is really just this idea of being seen and then saying, I don't only see you and I don't only hear the struggles that you're facing, but I'm hoping to to give myself to fight alongside you, to hold your hand with you um, while we try to fix this problem. While not all activism or student-led projects result in extreme threats or acts of retaliation, some do. And for this project, I really didn't want to shy away from actually diving into the realities and the behind the scenes of what activism can often result in for students and faculty who aid those students. Yeah, so it was actually like pretty soon after the account first went up when mm. we were still completely anonymous that we started receiving threats. Um, several of them were originally from fraternities who were mad that we were naming fraternities in these stories. Was it just through the Instagram account, like DMs? Yes, so we were getting Instagram DMs and then also our Google form for stories was anonymous. So okay. people were submitting threats through there. Um, we were getting threats from fraternities to sue us and then we were getting personal threats calling us sluts and like, all kinds of mm -hmm. slurs and then telling us that like we needed to be careful or watch our back or whatever mm -hmm. um, and it got to the point that like administration was actually concerned for our safety and mm -hmm. set us up an appointment with someone in the health and counseling center and we set up um, they gave us like little free alarms for our apartment um, mm -hmm. to to put up to make sure that like people weren't coming after us but that was definitely very emotionally exhausting on top of everything that we were dealing with. Mm -hmm. And actually, once we went public, the threats pretty much stopped. I think okay. I think that people were really comfortable coming after us when we were faceless and nameless. And then once they saw who we were, I think it got a little bit more real to folks. And I also think that by the time we came out in, like with our names and faces, it had gotten a lot of traction. I think at first people were like, oh, nobody's going to actually... like think this is a, something to pay attention to. We can threaten them all we want. But once there was like a campus-wide protest and the chancellor was sending emails, I think that they were like, okay, maybe we can't. But there were decisions, or there were conversations and decisions going on at the national levels of fraternities about what we were doing. And yeah. there were discussions about suing us. Like it was, it was like a big conversation. Yeah. We had this really big protest at the hockey game um, where we held up this banner that said pioneers uh, stole Indian land and killed Indian and murdered Indian people. Um, threats literally to our face, uh, our faces there. We ended up leaving early because we were getting so many threats and we were so scared. We like locked hands and left uh, for days after that. None of us, like any one of us walk alone because of like the threats we got online, the threats we got to our face. Um, and you didn't do anything. 
Um, they said they didn't have the capacity to do anything. Um, I will say this person's name, Damier, Damien Runnard. <laughs> I'm sure you've probably heard his name. He donates a lot to DU. He is my biggest hater or was my biggest hater during my time at DU. Uh, he called my bosses trying to get me fired. He tried to get me off the newspaper several times. He told me, fuck you to my face on Facebook. Uh, again, 19, 20 year old student, just like, just living my life. And I'm just like, cool. Um, yeah. So just like having to deal with that too, as a kid, you know, like these very violent, you know, acts at this point, it's not even microaggressions. It's just like threats. Um, and also, you know, trying to navigate everything else. It was just, it was, it was wild. <laughs> Recently, was this, what year was this? This was the year that the chancellor decided to keep the pioneer nickname, whatever it's what it is. <laughs> and so uh, I remember, this might've been right before, whenever people, students of color, I, I had graduated by this time, obviously, but um, had done their protest outside and like hundreds of people came. It looked really successful. And what, what is it called? Let's go do you, the blog that was terrible. Like had a fucking field day with <laughs> this, this thing. It was like, do you blah, 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 blah. And they were literally doxing people. They were literally, so like professors and, and students, they had students like faces and these pictures and these, these articles. And I tried to send a cease and desist letter because <laughs> me and my little, my little law student, I was like, what else? I knew nothing. I was like, I know how to write a cease and desist letter. Uh, it didn't work out. But my point is though that like, so I'm like an alumni who's like trying to help my friends who are still at DU who are literally getting docs, like having their pictures taken on there, trying to get pictures taken off. And um, like, what, what is DU doing? <laughs> like, why are they allowing their alumni who still have connections to the school? Obviously, they're still going to games. They're still donating, whatever. Like, why is there no repercussions for this? Throughout collecting the interviews for this podcast series, a name that continuously came up was that of Dr. Johnny Ramirez. And Dr. Johnny Ramirez, um, I would say has been one of the most empowering and impactful um, faculty members at the University of Denver. And to really put this in perspective that when Dr. Johnny's first year of teaching was coming to a close, uh, LSA had created a petition. I believe the petition was started by Andrea Macias who were advocating and petitioning to keep him on for another year or to keep him at the university. And there's been so many times in these interviews that people have called him a mentor and, and someone who really empowered them to make change, but also um, made them feel seen and made them feel heard and made them feel powerful. And so I think that just giving propers or propers is due that Dr. Johnny has made such an incredible impact. And I remember texting him once I had finished the majority of the interviews. And I was like, I don't know if you know this, but you made a huge impact at the University of Denver and we miss you and you just been absolutely incredible here and just thanking him for everything that he's that he's done for us. I mentioned this to say that one of the first um, events, public events that we had hosted um, was about the pioneer nickname, but also just revealing some of the research that we've done um, with the Remember X project and diving into that more heavily. And of course, one of the repeating demands throughout the years has been to uh, retire the pioneer moniker. So it was very much um, a necessary conversation within our introduction of Remember X to the greater public. And of course, you know, um, we had to shotgun it around uh, social media. So 
a lot of people knew about it, a lot of people who were in support, and of course, a lot of people who were not in support. And at this event, um, uh, it was hosted by me, Dr. Johnny, and Abdul. And so um, at the very beginning, we were admitting people, and I had seen like this name that was like guest. And I swear, I say I'm the one who submitted it, submitted the person. But Dr. Johnny's like, oh, no, I did it because he's too nice to just let me own up to the fact that I let this person into the Zoom room. And so we essentially got Zoom bombed. And it was, <laughs> I'm laughing because it was absolutely ridiculous and very anticlimactic for the people who had tried and Zoom boomed up, Zoom bombed us. But we were essentially starting <laughs> the, um, the uh, event. <laughs> and this person was dressed up as Boone, who was the mascot um, of few and luckily and um, rightly was retired in 2013 is no longer but still obviously alumni love him a lot and some alum some alumni love him a lot and so you still see Boone on campus you still see even un incoming students have Boone merch and whatnot but so at the very beginning of the, <laughs> the event they had like waited until we had started to turn on the person's camera and then someone dressed as Boom kind of popped up and what was funny about it was I had already been monitoring that um, Zoom profile because I thought the name under guests was a little suspicious. And so he was probably only visible for, I'd say, 15 seconds, maybe even less, um, that he was up there. And so a, a Facebook page called Denver Boone, who is very in support of Boone, to say the least, had taken a video from that recording of when Boone had popped up and put it on their Facebook page. And I just finished looking. I don't think it's on there anymore, but I still have the screenshots and everything because you always have to be prepared. And um, they had like taken that video and put it on the Facebook site and were kind of poking fun at us. But what was kind of very funny about the video is you could tell that they even felt like it was anticlimactic. Like it, he wasn't on the screen for more than like, like I said, mere seconds because I was on it. I was on it. And um, like the comment, one of the comments was like calling us cowards because we didn't let him in or whatever. But something that was beautiful about the event is like we weren't phased like at all. And Dr. Johnny, after um, it had happened, I'm not even sure if anyone saw it. I'm not even sure um, if people actually in the Zoom room had seen it. But he was just kind of like, you know what? We're, we know we're doing good work when the haters come or something like that. And that's something that I've always um, believed in. I'm interested to see how this podcast series is going to go over. I'm interested to see uh, what the next steps for me are in terms of that regard. But what I am saying with this is that was the first event um, that we thrown that was also covered by Let's Go DU. And also, obviously, they were present because they had recorded the um, the part of the event that they wanted to, the Zoom bombing. And I think that was really when it started for Dr. Johnny in terms of receiving um, people trying to get him fired, essentially, for helping us. And so I always say this because I think that Dr. Johnny got all of the retaliation um, and the threats that really should have been credited to me. It was my event. Um, me and Abdul had planned it, right? We, we put it on. It was my research. Uh, it was the work of my team. And so that was really a very impactful thing for me because, I don't know, it, it brought a lot of different emotions for me. And one that this, this person 
this human being, Dr. Johnny, was helping me. And he didn't have to, right? Like, he didn't have to do any of that. He didn't have to be a mentor to me. He didn't have to give me that space to have this event, but he did. And then in just trying to make change and in, while inspiring me and while empowering to make change for me to make change and empowering me throughout this whole journey, he gets hit with um, people uh, CCing him to emails to the chancellor, trying to get him fired, uh, blog articles on let's go to you and whatnot. And then Raboon just um, degrading him essentially as a human being and grading the impact of of his work. And so that's kind of something I reflect on a lot. I think that's another reason I didn't receive too much is I was just very anonymous, but like we were both in, in that video, right? And we were both like in those photos, but it was him who got the, it was him who had gotten the, the brunt of it. It was him. And something that I really also want to note, like with Dr. Johnny is throughout that time, you know, um, once he started receiving messages and um, that he checked in on me like all the time. He'd call me up and say, hey, are you receiving anything? And we started a folder at RememberX specifically just for um, hate messages or anything that we received um, to document and have it documented. Um, I was very lucky that I didn't receive any of that, but he received all of it. And even in the midst, and if this doesn't, like he's a beautiful person because even in the midst of him dealing with his own things and dealing with the own hate that he was receiving, he still had the energy to check in on me. And then in terms after he checked in on me, I check in on Abdul and me and both Abdul stayed safe. And so it's, I think one, Kiana had actually said this in part two of Legacy that does really speak to DU's issues retaining um, faculty of color, that when they do come in and they are making positive change, right? Like, these are people who are empowering people. These are people who are letting people use their voice that they get pushed out and they get messages and they get threats. And I think it's one thing also to note that when we're talking about like threats and we're talking about retaliation and we're just talking about like this existence on campus that that doesn't only solely apply to students, but also applies to like their mentors. It applies to the people who actually see them and try to help make change. And so I think that's just something that I've been reflecting on and something I'm very grateful for Dr. Johnny for. Something that has been repeatedly highlighted throughout this podcast and specifically in Legacy Part 2 was that students often are balancing multiple responsibilities. Some have jobs, multiple jobs or internships, multiple internships, and are holding leadership positions within the University of Denver. While all students have a passion for this work and really believe in fighting for change, it often does result in burnout or fatigue, and there is an emotional, psychological, and physical toll that can often happen. And considering too, like as a freshman and sophomore, I don't think I was, you know, I wasn't completely aware of how much labor we were actually doing, like the planning, um, giving land acknowledgements, setting up Indigenous Peoples Day, missing and murdered Indigenous women, our New Beginnings powwow, like all of that is I feel good emotional labor, but at the end of the day, when we're being asked by the university to do certain things or to attend these certain events for show, it's kind of like, wait a minute. So what are we doing here? Like if you can invite different speakers from off campus and pay them, I don't know, five, $10,000 and we're getting no money whatsoever. I mean, it's not all about money but at the end of the day. I just think that 
there should be some sort of compensation for the work that we do because as you mentioned before as students of color and, and like the different minority groups on campus like our college experiences are super different from other students considering that we're not coming here just for school there's so much additional labor of having extracurricular activities whether that's in the student working groups if that's club sports whatever it may be holding a job because the tuition or whatever is so expensive here it's just finding additional ways to kind of survive here on campus and making sure that we're advocating for issues that are also important to us as is the case with most activism the people who are most affected by it are the people who are leading the activism and so i will say that like this work was a lot of times triggering for me. I had to start yeah. seeing a therapist again. I like had to redo trauma therapy on sexual assaults that I had like already done it on and like moved yeah. past and um, started being physically triggered more often even when I wasn't doing something related to it just because like I was living it every single day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I even started to absorb like secondhand trauma from reading these stories. Mm -hmm. Like I was the one going through and formatting these stories into posts. So I was reading every single story we got mm -hmm. And that's dramatic. And so I think that that also contributed to me, like, starting to have more physical reactions. I talked with my therapist about, like, how to remove myself and, like, how to be able to, like, read one of those stories and step aside and, like, take care of myself and, like, recognize that that's not my trauma to deal with because it's really hard mm -hmm. to draw that boundary. Um, I also think that, like, because of how intense all of it was, I, like, forget some things that happened. Like, I recently um, was talking about this with someone else and giving a presentation on Do Better, and I had to go back to, like, remember certain things that administration did and mm -hmm. certain things that had happened because I think that it was just, like, so intense that my brain, like, blocked out some of it. Mm -hmm. um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's very real that, like, activism takes a toll, and I think that, like, self-care is, like, not just, like, important, but, like, necessary. And then just acknowledging, like how much energy mm -hmm. and how much like you had said about how it like impacted your mental health your own well-being noticing the impact of that and then also you're still a student mm -hmm. and like i'm assuming you were you did you have a job i had two internships yeah okay <laughs> <laughs> that's what i'm saying yeah. so you literally have like people who are working doing school and spending, you said like, what, a thousand hours? Yeah. Doing this stuff. Yeah. And like that, I feel like does not, it never gets like oh, totally. the attention it needs of how much time, like how much you guys have going on. Like from sundown to sunup. Bet, bet. So you graduated um, the year I got there. I got there in 2018. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Yes. It feels like so long ago now. I guess it's only been like what? two almost three years I guess but right is that how the math works I don't know but I went straight to law school right so it's like yeah. <laughs> like I've been in school forever because I have been but at <laughs> the same time it's like do you feels like a whole other world um yeah and it's been interesting because I because I like just like graduated and left I feel like there was no time to really process my experience mm -hmm. so when I got asked to do this I was like looking at the questions and uh, you know just like thinking back at my time at DU and I was like yeah that was really wait am I allowed to curse on this oh yeah okay cool. that was really <laughs> fucked up <laughs> yeah. that was a really fucked up experience that I went through um and traumatizing <laughs> I like had a yeah. debrief with my therapist afterwards. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, no, it, yeah, it's, it's weird because it like simultaneously feels like a, a whole lifetime ago, but at the same time, so relevant to who I am now. It just really shaped who I am. Um, and yeah, like in a good way in that like I became stronger and more like able to advocate for myself and for other people. And I definitely took that to UCLA Law where I am now. I'm also very in this right now. I've always been a fighter, always will be. Um, but also, you know, stuck with me in like kind of a negative way because there was a lot of experiences I had. But I, for me, like the biggest thing when I was reflecting on it, because I'm older now, I'm like 25, um, was like, dude, I was a kid. Like I was getting like death threats from alumni and like being stalked by white supremacists at like 19. My sister's 19. She's a, she's a baby, you know? And to like have to deal with that on your own and then not get like institutional support from your university that you went to. I, yeah. I just can't believe that happened. Um, so yeah, oh, that's like the intro is <laughs> my journey um, of looking and preparing for doing this interview. So yeah. You have just finished listening to Legacy Part 3. In Legacy Part 4, I am joined by DU faculty to discuss the impact of student activism as it pertains to the creation of the critical race and ethnic studies minor. In this episode, Dr. Johnny also discusses his impact and offers a response to students' feelings regarding their mentors, which largely consists of faculty of color being pushed out from the university. Thank you for listening to the Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is a product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we can continue to bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe or follow, like, and share on the platform that you're listening to us on. For Rage opportunities and updates, be sure to follow our social media pages. You can find us at The Rage Podcast all one word, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, you're listening to the Rage Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to another episode, and we'll catch you next time.